6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Find out what's really going on. And you won't do that on the 10 o'clock news. You need to do a little homework. And there are resources around. That's one reason we have our proprietary database for all our students and all of that, to be able to do that quickly and with penetration and with relevance. But the more you know about what's going on, and the more you know your Bible, the more you realize there's a convergence, not of one thing, of over a dozen that are converging on our near horizon. I'm not setting dates, I'm just saying it's still time, there's still opportunities to improve your own report card before the king returns. And so now the listeners of this epistle were approaching 70 AD, the judgment of Jerusalem where the temple was destroyed. Because of what? Because the national rejection of their Messiah. Jesus so identifies it in Luke 19 at the triumphal entry. He wept over Jerusalem. Because you didn't recognize this thy day, the day that was specifically uh, anticipated to the very day by Gabriel some five centuries earlier. Jesus warned them of its coming. That's in Luke 19. And it amplified in Luke 21. He told them specifically that this generation would not pass. And 38 years later, the same period of time of the generation in, in, in the wilderness, 38 years later, on 70 AD, it was destroyed. And over a million and a half men, women, and children were slaughtered by the Romans in that dreadful siege. The Christians that followed Jesus' instruction had retreated by his instruction to Pella over in Petraea. And according to Eusebius, the recording in the 3rd century, not one Christian was killed out of that million and a half that were slaughtered because they followed instructions. Okay, well now we're going to approach the end of chapter 10, but we're going to be dealing with the fourth of five of these warnings we've been talking about. The intensity of each warning gets more serious. This one is about willful sin. It speaks of fiery judgment and sore punishment. This is getting, the language is getting tougher and tougher. The reference here, the context, is the writer's allusion to end time events. Understand that. What is, what happened, what's the next thing we're looking for? The harpazo, the rapture, as it's called, right? What's the next thing that happens after the rapture? Judgment seat of Christ. And that is really in the, the, the forefront of what's in the mind of the writer here. These subjects have been in his forefront from the beginning of this epistle all the way through. And the author includes himself when he speaks of we in all of these things. He says, if, if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Wow. The naive reader out of context, that sounds like you can lose your salvation. That's not what the subject's all about. Four, because of what he just said, if you will. He's anticipating the apostasy that was just warned of, okay? If we sin willfully, that's a conditional, circumstantial participle in the present tense. It means a continuing action. It's actually the willfully is in front in the Greek, which is a way of making it even more intense. 
He's not dealing with one simple isolated act of sin, but what he's talking about here is a specific sin that is habitually, deliberately committed, is the, is the thought here. He's abiding in that sin, if you will. It's not a sin committed out of ignorance or weakness. It's a sin planned out, determined, and committed with forethought. That's what the Greek emphasizes. Are we together so far? Heavy stuff coming down. Hang on. Fashion your seatbelts. The context of this is turning away from knowledge. The specific sin he has in mind is the attempt of his readers to leave Christianity and return to Judaism. That's a repudiation of Christ's sacrifice. If we sin willfully after that, we've received the knowledge of the truth. That is a very... The word there is... The readers already have the knowledge, and the knowledge is epignosis, which is precise and correct knowledge, not just an approximation. It's very precise. That's an intensive in the Greek, a knowledge of the specific truth. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. See, after the readers have read this letter, they will have full knowledge of the truth. That's why he's hammering this stuff away so thoroughly. They'll have the truth, the issues involved, the circumstances involved, and the results of their actions will be expressly nailed out here. If they insist upon going back to Judaism willfully, after reading this letter, it will demonstrate the enormity and severity of their defection. Wow, that's called apostasy. There'll be no more... There's another... If you, if you disparage and put to naught the sacrifice of Christ, there's nothing that will be better or bigger or that will avail. You're abandoning the one thing that's been done for you. Since Jesus was rejected, they have no other sacrifice for His. His was their final shot. And uh, there is... You need to understand the Old Testament perspective here. There are no sacrifices for certain sins. All kinds of sins had all kinds of special sacrifices. This had that one, this had that one. There's one group of sins that had no sacrifices for them. Adultery, murder, and blasphemy. What was the penalty for that? No sacrifice. Death. Death. There was no sacrifice for that. See, and there's no sacrifice that can avail if you reject the one that's been made for you. See, for these kinds of sins, the people could not offer a sacrifice. And let me, I'll show you that in Numbers 15. Instead, they were subject to the pain of... We're talking physical death here. We're not talking loss of salvation. Don't get confused here. Many people do. Numbers 15, starting verse 29. Old Testament Torah, Numbers 20, 15. Ye shall have one law for him that sinneth through ignorance, both for him and that is born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger that sojourneth among them. But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people." Because he hath despised the word of the Lord and hath broken his commandment, that soul shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. No sacrifice for those guys. Okay? So, <laughs> when you compare verses 23 and tw through 25 and verse 26 through 29, the sin that the guy is talking about here involves separating themselves from the other believers permanently. They're going to go off back to Judaism, leave, leave the believers. They're going to do that at a huge cost to themselves. And this, as I say, refers to the return of Judaism, the temple, and all that entails. Why would they do that? To escape the persecution they're experiencing because they become Christians. Now, what's even worse about this move on their part, that their sin involves a denunciation of the three elements of verse 29. 
That includes the work of the Son, the work of the Father, and the work of the Holy Spirit. All three are involved in those three things. So it's a repudiation of the whole Trinity. And that's bad stuff. For this kind of sin, there is no further sacrifice. The individual is therefore subject to judgment. And it's physical, not, not spiritual. The nature of the judgment in this context means three things. It means physical death, verse 28 and 29 imply that. It means physical death in the 70 A.D. judgment. The people that did that were wiped out in the 70 A.D. judgment. So that was a fulfillment of that prophecy. And also it means spiritually the loss of rewards in the next life. Now there's a difference between loss of justification, which you can't do, and loss of your rewards, which you can do, okay? And so there, there's, the background is that for some sins there was no sacrifice. And uh, so for the believer, all sins are for, forgivable for eternity, but not all sins can be rectified in this life. Okay? For if we sin, here's a whole passage, if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Fearful looking for judgment. There's no extra sacrifices for apostasy. And... Uh, it's pretty heavy stuff here. And there will be a physical judgment of exactly that kind that came in 70 AD when the city and the temple were both destroyed, putting an end to the Levitical system. And the author goes on here, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. What kind of, and with what kind of judgment was that man judged at the mouth of two or three witnesses? Death, actually. He was judged with physical death. Didn't lose his salvation or whatever. It was physical death that was at issue. Two or three witnesses. And all the three previous warnings, so also in the fourth warning, the issue is physical death. Now those who turn their backs on the one greater than Moses will also suffer physical death in 70 AD. That's his point. Of how much sore judgment suppose ye shall ye be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, hath counted the blood of the covenant, ooh, and wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and done, hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. If these Jewish believers go back to Judaism, it is a rejection of the work of the Trinity. That's the point. There's flagrant contempt for the Word of God. There's counting the blood of the covenant. That's the Father thing is unholy. The assault of insolence against the Holy Spirit. Oh, and it's interesting to see what Peter talks about here. 2 Peter 2. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the Holy Commandment delivered unto them. Boy, bad news. Continue in Hebrews. For we know that, you know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth to me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. And again, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These are two quotes from Deuteronomy by the writer. They're not the same thing. They're very similar, but not quite the same thing. God's character is at issue here. Vengeance is his sole prerogative, nobody else's, Okay. But he will judge his people. Two different points in these two things. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, and a quote from the Egyptian verse 36. But we learn some things the way this is quoted, by the way. There's some fingerprints here I have to share with you before we get to the substance of it. These two quotes are from Deuteronomy 32, 35 and 36. Verse 36 is quoted exactly from the Hebrew. Okay. However, verse 35 is a strange one. It's not quoted exactly from the Hebrew, nor from the Greek Septuagint. Not a big deal, but curious. This particular quote happens to be from neither. 
The author is using his own rendering of the text. Now, this is not a really big deal, except that this occurs only in one other place in the Bible, and that's in Romans 12, 19. It's an idiosyncrasy of guess who? Paul. I submit it as just another of these, what I'll call a fingerprint. The author of Romans quotes the same as the writer of Hebrews quotes it. It's one of these suggestive evidences that's Paul's fingerprint on the text, because he has this particular way of rendering that particular verse. He's the only one that does that. It's the only place that this shows up. So I think that's curious. I couldn't pass it by. Let's go on. I want to draw on a pivotal insight from 2 Corinthians 5. And I got both the front end and back end verses here so you get the context. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of Him. For we must all, that mean most of us? No, I think the word all means what it says, right? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, in the Greek called the Bema seat. And don't let people tell you that's just an, a, a place for athletic awards. I've been taught, so you hear that all over the place. It's true that everything here is in the positive sense, but the Bema seat is the same seat that Pilate judged Christ, Agrippa, etc. It is a judgment seat. This thing about making the Bema is misunderstood. Judgment seat of Christ. Now, everyone before that judgment seat is saved. That's not the issue, but there are some serious issues here. That everyone may receive the things done in his body. Christ's body? No. The believer's body. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Who is he talking about? You and me. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciousness, and he goes on. The point is, we all are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That, this is the key verse. 2 Corinthians 5.9. You want to make note of this and understand it and take it. Let's under, we're all looking forward to the harpazo, the rapture, right? What happens after the rapture? You want to find out the details, you can check Nan's book. But let me show you quickly what it is. On the earth, we've studied that again and again. There's the world leader comes up. There's the great tribulation. There's the campaign of Armageddon. That's on the earth, right? What's going on in heaven at this time? Prior to all of this, there's the rapture in heaven. The first thing we're confronted with is the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat, as it's sometimes called. We have the marriage of the Lamb. And then we have Him return to the earth to set up His kingdom the second coming in its proper term. And he establishes the Davidic kingdom, fulfilling the Davidic covenant on the earth. That's the pattern. Diagrammed another way, we have the interval of Daniel's 70 weeks that we're in now, the last seven weeks to tick off, forthcoming. Prior to that week even starting, the harpazo, or the rapture takes place. There's, by some distance, it could be an hour, or it could be 30 years, we have no idea. It's not necessarily contemporaneous with the beginning of the seventh week. Many people make that mistake. Then in heaven, we have a series of things. We have the Bema Seat of Christ, and we have the Marriage of the Lamb, right? Down on the earth, we have the familiar abomination of desolation, splitting that 70 week into two halves. Each half called three and a half years, 42 months, 12 months. It's the most documented period of time in both the Old and New Testament. And it's, of course, climaxed. By the Great Tribulation is the last half of that, by the way. It's not seven years, three and a half years. Then we have the Battle of the climate. It builds up the Battle of Armageddon, which is interrupted by the second coming of Jesus Christ in which he sets up his kingdom on the earth. We have two mysterious periods of time. Well, there's a sheep of goat judgment and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we have this strange 1,290 days, 335 days, 
thing in Daniel 12 that everybody has speculations about. We'll wait and see. But we have the sheep and goat judgments. The more you study that, the more, more questions it raises. But anyway, marriage supper, don't confuse that with the marriage of a lamb. There are two, one's in heaven, one's on the earth, apparently. And the great white throne, climax at the end of the thousand years. And that's what ends it for everybody. Then there's a new heavens, a new earth. And we have this peculiar new Jerusalem come down and hover the earth, whatever all that's about. So that's a quick perspective. We'll talk more about that as we have time before we conclude the session. The point is, the Bema seat is the judgment that's hanging over the readers of this epistle. That's why Paul has this strange verse in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. Paul says, I keep my body and bring it under subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. you got to be kidding. Paul lived his life in paranoia. Was he afraid of losing his salvation? Absolutely not. He wrote the book on eternal security. That's not what he's sweating. What does he mean? I myself should... He's fearful that he might lose his inheritance. Okay? Peter has a similar thing. For the time is coming that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? For if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? That's a good question for the unbeliever. I want to also point out to you another thing that relates to all of this. Matthew 25 deals with this, with the parable of the ten talents. I won't go through the whole thing. You all know that the the guy that had ten got ten more. The guy that had five got five more. And then he gets to the guy that just had one. He said, The Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothy servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. What the guy did was just hide it safely so it wouldn't get lost. And he returns it. And he gets, he, he, that was a losing strategy. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers. And then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury or interest. Take therefore the talent from him and give it to him which hath ten talents. So this guy didn't cut it very well. Look what happens. But every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. Doesn't make much sense until you study this parable carefully. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there's many of us that have presumed over the many years that this, this is talking about being cast into hell. This term, outer darkness, has been exegeted so provocatively by J.H. Ladd, um, Jody uh, Dillow, and Erwin uh, Lutzer, uh, Charles Stanley, and others. I, was, I, like many, were very resistant at first. My wife's diligence in chasing down the background here has uh, convinced me that the, other, the, the, the surprising view is the correct one. This is not talking about hell. This is a saved person that's losing his inheritance. The word is that actually in the Greek means the darkness outside. And unfaithful servants are saved by grace but are not positively rewarded for their unfaithfulness. Those in the darkness outside have lost the reward of inheritance in the millennial kingdom. To presume that this refers to Hades is an illegitimate connotative transfer. And we'll deal with this in the final chapters. I think we're going to finish uh, Hebrews enough to do a recap and get into this in more depth. But I want to ha highlight that right here. All through this epistle, it presumes an understanding of what we're dealing with here. But the main writers here are Dillo, Ladd, Lutzer, and, and A.E. Wilson, and um, uh, Charles Stanley and others. But if you want to find out about this, I encourage you to take a look at Nan's new book. 
called the kingdom, the power, and the glory, because it deals with this thoroughly. And it doesn't just deal with the exegesis and the exposition. It deals with the practical. What do you do? So what do you do about all this, personally? Let's move on. Hebrews 10, verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great flight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. He's complimenting his readers, because among his readers are people that showed some class in the early part of their work. You want to call to remembrance the former days in the which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great flight of afflictions. Call to remembrance former days. And uh, the first deterrent to apostasy is to remember one's early days in the faith. You've got somebody considering apostasy, remind them of what it was like in their early days. If it was real, they'll remember. While ye were made a gazing stock, the word in the Greek is the word from which we get the term theater by the way. Okay? Theatriso. Gazing stock. You were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions. And the word afflictions implies persecutions, and it implies in the Greek the loss of property. This wasn't casual insults. This was serious persecution these people had endured. So it's understandable why they're looking at the possibility of enough of all this. I'm going back to Judaism. And not only that, partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. So, okay. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds. Again, it sounds like Paul, doesn't it? And look joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and, and enduring substance. The word compassion there is uh, sympatheo. The word sympathy, what comes from it, but the word in the Greek is actually much deeper, a deep inner agony that he's talking about. Okay. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. See, the issue here is not salvation, it's reward, all the way through. Spiritual maturity. And uh, has nothing to do with salvation. Finishing well is the name of the game. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. You know, it's quite conceivable that the writer here was confronting the same problem of delay of the second, second advent, which Paul himself had also encountered in Thessalonica. That's why he wrote the first and second letters of Thessalonica. Same kind of growing concern. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Wow. Does that phrase sound familiar? Yes, it's the key word to a trilogy, okay? The just shall live by... That's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. And who are the just? That's what the book of Romans answers. And it, it quotes this in Romans verse, chapter 1, verse 17. The just shall live how? That's what Galatians deals with, and this is thus quoted in Galatians 3.11. How shall they live? By faith. And that's quoted here in Hebrews 10.37, but in chapter 10.39, it's going to set the stage for going into the rest of this. For we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Patient endurance, so as not to lose their crowns at the judgment seat. Again, there's nothing in these warnings that talks about salvation. They'd lose their physical lives if they mess up here, and their rewards, but not their salvation. In Luke 9.62, we're reminded by Jesus, he says, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. When you come to Christ, don't look back. Keep, back. Keep going forward. 
John 17, 12, Jesus himself speaking to the Father. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name, Father. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So if you can lose your salvation, God lose something even more. His good name. Okay. I love John 10. I love to conclude this so you don't have any doubts about security. John 10, verse 28, 29. Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. There are two hands involved. And I love to, to paraphrase Walter Martin. If, if you can lose your salvation, I've got a new name for God. Butterfingers. Okay, we're in the last session. The Hall of Faith, chapter 11 of Hebrews, one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible, often called the Hall of Faith. And it's going to climax the trilogy on Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. The just was Romans, the shall live by Galatians, but by faith is, of course, Hebrews. And the Hebrews passage is pointing to the next chapter, which is your assignment for next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you that you've gone to such extremes on our behalf. And we do pray that through your Holy Spirit and through your word, we would more fully understand the opportunities that lay before us. We thank you, Father, that you've gone to such extremes. And yet, Father, we, we also seek your illumination of what specifically you would have of each of us in these days. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit we might grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, that we each might be more effective stewards of the opportunities and resources you put at our disposal, that we would be more pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength, our Redeemer, our King, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.